Okay, guys, welcome to the Real Guy Podcast. Today, this is uh, Captain Jeff, and I got a very special guest, guy that's dear to my heart, been friends with him for over, uh, what, 35 years, maybe, something like that, and um, famous chef in town, Chef Joe Parsons is here with me today. We're going to talk to him about fish, we're going to talk to him about cooking, we're going to talk to him about preparing fish, how to keep your fish, what's good, what's bad, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Uh, and what is complete horse malarkey? If it's horse malarkey, Joe's gonna let you know. He's one of those dudes that's not afraid to tell you the truth. He's not afraid to tell you what's on his mind. So without further ado, let's welcome Chef Joe Parsons to the show today. Jeff, Chef, thanks for showing up, pal. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Nice to be here. Been been a long time coming. <laughs> well, you know, um, the chef and I usually get a chance to hang out quite a bit, but um, this time of year is my my busy year, so I haven't been seeing him as much as I normally do. But uh, I wanted him to come in. I wanted him to talk about, uh, you, know, you know, all these fishing shows and YouTube shows and stuff. They always got, like, you know, some fake chef that comes in and does a recipe for the fish. And, you know, I don't know, like, they fill up a segment with it and all. And, it, you know, it kind of makes me giggle a little bit because, I mean, we we'll cook a lot of fish. And I don't know. I, would, I just never took one of those recipes off one of those shows because they got like there's a lot to it and everything horse malarkey is it horse malarkey joe oh yeah man a lot of that stuff is smoke and mirrors you what do you mean smoke and mirrors well you know it's all fun and dandy you got the good setting with the palm trees behind some fancy fish cutting table and some joker up there chopping up a mango throwing some stuff together you know probably tastes like nothing <laughs> other than ocean so joe how long uh how long you been in that business how long you been a master chef I've been in this game going on 30 years, uh, traveling around, you know, I started here in Fort Lauderdale and then I just realized Fort Lauderdale is not really a foodie town as everybody thinks it is. So I left out of here, worked in Chicago, New Orleans, Seattle, New Mexico, then I went over to Europe for about four and a half years and then... Uh, I usually do openings. I've done about 19 restaurant openings, uh, six of them in Europe, two of them worked in central Mexico. Yeah, and I just worked like pretty much three, four months straight, and then I would take about three months off vacation. I was fortunate to travel like 13 countries when I was home based in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, it's been a ride, you know? It's a constant constant motion chef life you, you you go where the opportunities are so kind of like kind of like being a professional athlete almost something like that you know I mean that's how I got to Sweden there's a special visa that they bring in athletes musicians and artists and chefs so that was why I was there and able to stay so long I'd probably still be there but you know you gotta keep keep moving keep learning Right, right. If you guys don't know, uh, Chef and I both graduated from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas High School here in Fort Lauderdale in 1986. And I went to um, St. Thomas Aquinas in 1984. I was only there my junior and senior year. And uh, Chef was a nose guard on the team. And um, I don't know, I met him fairly early of being on the team. And as soon as we kind of met, you know, it seemed like we had a lot in common. We always had a good time together. Um, and we worked hard. We worked really hard at, you know, being good football players, being good teammates. And um, I don't know, kind of hit it off ever since then. Um, you know, when we were kids, uh, you know, we played a lot of football and then we'd get our breaks and stuff. And, and I used to like to 
spent time with the chef and we did some fishing together, hung out with the family together. And um, they were just, you know, really, you know, special, special moments in my life because, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just a lot different when you're fishing professionally as opposed to learning how to fish and hanging out with the people that you really like and spending that kind of time. Chef, the, uh, back in those days, I mean, uh, that's before you became like, you know, the big chef and traveling around Europe and opening up restaurants and stuff. But uh, the fishing we did together, there was always some big meals and um, I don't know, I think that, at least for me, you know, when it comes to eating fish, you know, I think about those days and then, uh, I don't know, call it your basics, your fundamentals. Yeah. We all did it. We did a lot of fishing when we got up. We went over the islands with your dad, flew on the plane, rode four-wheelers on the beach. I was doing a lot of fishing before I even met you when I was younger. I've been fishing with my dad since I was five. We'd go every Sunday to the Dania Pier, and we were big. We, were, we fished every weekend, my dad. And then uh, I didn't even know that you were, I mean, I didn't, was fishing long before I met you. Then in high school, I realized you're a big fisherman, and that's where we were hanging out. And then uh, I was never even planning on being a chef. I actually graduated college with a criminal justice uh, degree with a double minor in sociology and abnormal psychology. So I was going to be a federal agent. And at that time, there was a big 10-year hiring freeze, and I guess I got bored waiting, and I got into some trouble, so I had to sit home one night and say, well, i got to find a way to make a living, and if I'm not going to be a... Uh, federal agent DEA well I like to cook food so that's how it happened and then ever since it's been just kind of a you know rolling on that's cool and then um, gotta feel fairly fortunate that you're able to travel the world and pick up different cultures and you know kind of be a part of uh, a whole lot of places besides the United States because you know one of the things about Americans is let's just say that uh, there's a lot of people in America that think the world revolves around America, and it definitely doesn't. And being in the food world and being able to, you know, experience all those different places, is there anything that, like, sticks out, you know, especially when it comes to, like, you know, eating fish or catching fish over in these, you know, different cultures? Well, I'll tell you what. The four and a half years I spent in Sweden, I ate a lot of salmon. I'll tell you that. That's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of salmon there. That's what they eat over there, salmon? Oh, man, it's salmon in the morning, salmon for lunch, salmon for dinner, but... You know, their salmon there is a whole lot different than the farm-raised salmon we get here. And as far as traveling goes, you know, I knew when I was living in Fort Lauderdale I wanted to get out and see parts. You know, I make a joke sometimes, which is probably not really funny for most Floridians, but, you know, when you talk to people down here, it's hard to talk to them about traveling Europe and everywhere because a lot of people think Florida is paradise and they haven't been north of Disney World and south of Key West. <laughs> so it's kind of, I make that joke all the time when you're, when you're trying to have conversations with somebody and they, you tell them about your travels in Europe and they're like, wow, you know, it's hard for them to relate. You know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a southern redneck from here, you know, and I had the fortune to get out and travel around the world and see other countries and immerse myself in different cultures. I mean, I dropped down in central Mexico and Guadalajara and lived there almost a year without speaking a lick of Spanish or Mexican Spanish, which is much different than the Spanish you speak in Hialeah, I can tell you that. <laughs> and you know, I cut my teeth down in Miami working with 75-year-old Cuban ladies, so, and I 
done a lot of different cooking. I worked in Providence, Rhode Island on Federal Hill, which is a famous uh, street, all Italian, back from the early 1900s. I had the privilege of working for Kenny Silvestri and Buddy Cianci, who was the mayor at the time in Providence, getting my Sicilian chops. Uh, so it's been good, you know? But it's hard because it's kind of like we're a dying breed. Chefs these days, especially when you get older, you know, your resume gets so stacked, it's hard to get hired. People say, oh, we can't afford you. They don't want to, they want the creativity, they just don't want to pay for it. Yeah, that's not, uh, you know, that's not exclusive in the uh, food industry, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm that's sure. That kind of seems to be the, the way of the world. The let's going see if we trend. Can, let's, see if we can, let's see if we can get for nothing, exactly. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a situation that I just dealt with here in Fort Lauderdale there, you know, that I did an opening for some people. And I brought two of my guys that have been with me like 15 years. And I opened the place and I made the menu, worked on it for over a year. I worked six and a half months straight, seven days a week, 14 hour days. And then when your contract comes up after a year, the problem is when you're a perfectionist, you get the place self-automated. And then once it runs without you, and now you're getting the benefit of not having to be there 14 hours a day, the guys that are paying you, they say, oh, well, these guys underneath them, he trained so well they can run it. Next thing you know, you're out of a job. That's how it works. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's yeah, it's kind of like the the sign of the times. But the, the you know, but the, but the innovation and the and the and the things that are going on now and the way business is changing, where it's not so much retail, you know, where uh, households are getting a lot more deliveries, a lot more service work. So hopefully, hopefully, there's some light at the end of the tunnel for. You know some of the guys that can really you know do something special you know in the kitchen now the um one of the things that uh i want you guys to understand is uh joe is an expert what did you call what is it called in the in the chef's world when you can cut all the fish like you do and everything butcher i mean it's a butcher fish fishmonger fish butcher but it's like a, it's like a status you get, right? Once you get so good at it. Yeah, you you get you cut. You know, I probably cut more fish than most people have eaten in their whole life. But that's the joy of it. I mean, and actually, I learned to cut fish. I spent a lot of time in Bimini when I was growing up, with my father's friend who had a big 52-foot Bertram, and we'd fish during the day, and I'd stand on the docks, and when the boats would come in, I would just sit there and slay fish for all the boat guys coming in. And uh, this Bahamian man taught me, and I still have the knife that he gave me since I was 12. So I learned a lot about mass cutting fish then. And then a lot of restaurants, I'd be cutting the fish, and the tourists would come around and be an open kitchen with glass, and they'd sit there and watch you and film you cutting fish. And some restaurants were open kitchen. I, I opened a restaurant in Beach Place back in 96 it was called splash beach place right here yeah. on fort lauderdale, fort lauderdale beach, beach right? yeah okay and what would happen was when the place would just get packed and people were waiting for a table i'd go into the back cooler and i'd wheel out like a 105 pound black grouper <laughs> and i would just slay it right in front of them in like less than five minutes and everybody would just be pointing. They're like, "That's who I want to eat tonight," you know. So you kind of did that for entertainment purposes, as because of the big weight. And, Absolutely. You know, kind of, oh, dude, that's when you roll out a 105-pound grouper, and you fillet it within like three minutes, and you're portioning it, and it's on the menu. People are like, "Wow, you see how fresh it is." That's what I'm eating. So it was kind of a, 
sales show, you know. Uh, but I, I'm not as quick as I used to be, but I can still, I can still slay some fish. Well, you know, the, the visual aspect of seeing a big fish and then somebody cutting it up and then actually eating it, I mean, it's obviously a turn on. I mean, most of my fishing trips, we don't kill anything. We let everything go. But you can talk to people about their catches and they damn sure want to talk about cooking it and eating it and cleaning it. So I'm sure that the uh, people down there at Beach Place were thoroughly entertained while they were waiting for their fish down there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, now at all the cultures out there, um, which one did you gravitate, gravitate to most? Uh, pretty much when I came back, when I opened my first place, it was the taco shop, but not just a taco shop. I really enjoy Mexican food because I found the people in Mexico, as scary as Mexico can be at times, the people are very kind and they're humble and they want to learn. And the food is so dynamic. I mean, unfortunately, we have so much bad Mexican food here in the United States. It's not real Mexican, but... When you immerse yourself in there and learn with the old ladies and watch their techniques, it's pretty, it's pretty dynamic and pretty complex. I mean, if anybody knows what a mole is, it's a significant sauce to the Mexican culture. Every family has their own. It has like 30 ingredients in it. And if you can even remember to put them all in there, it's one thing. But the technique of when to put them in, how long to cook it, if it's thick enough to blend, it takes like six hours. And that's like family secrets you know like every every italian family has their own gravy or sauce or whatever whatever you want to call it i mean when it boils down to it it's tomatoes garlic and bay leaf and some onions or whatever else you put it's pretty simple but now some of the sauces in the mexican cuisine they're pretty very 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 complex so and i enjoy that aspect of it you got you well it doesn't surprise me that you say that because um when uh, Victoria was only like four or five years old, you know, we'd bring her down there to the uh, JoJo's Tacos down here on uh, Lauderdale by the Sea. And um, it was just, you know, one of the kids' favorite things to do. She loved the tacos. She loved to see the kitchen. She loved to see all the food and the, she's really into the guacamole and all that. But the one thing that I learned, you know, by going down to the restaurant and then hanging out with you and uh, some of your Latin friends is that, um, I mean, you guys cook so much together and work so hard together. I mean, you guys, I mean, yeah, you were the big white gringo out of the bunch, but you guys really seemed like you had a brotherhood. Yeah. I mean, is that just with the Mexicans, or was that kind of like all the dudes like well, that? Well, you know, actually, I've had a lot of Mexicans that I've worked with, uh, but the two chefs that have been with me the longest are actually Colombian. Oh, really? Yeah, the the two guys that I approached, my protégés, were actually from Colombia, and actually I met them in South Beach, and they weren't even legal yet. Okay. So I uh, kind of helped them along with their Social Security, their sponsorship, and helped along the process. And you know, I enjoyed learning about Colombian food. There's a, you know some very significant dishes to Colombian cuisine. And they were with me for like 15 years, and now you know they're kind of on their own, making their making good money. I mean, can you imagine coming from Colombia and being illegal and scratching out a living, working three jobs, and now you're making eighty thousand dollars a year in Fort Lauderdale with full benefits? I mean, talk about the American dream. The American, That's the American dream. The American dream's still alive. It's just all in perspective. That's right. It goes by the you know it's, it's you know it's kind of 
secret society American dream. Right. You know, a lot of Americans don't get the American dream because they're not willing to put in the work, as you call it, water time. <laughs> and a lot of Americans don't want to put in the work. But I'll tell you what, these guys, when they were with me, they were working two, three jobs, sleeping four hours. I mean, you go one job, eight to five, another job, six to 12 at night. I mean, that's putting in the work. That's why I had so much respect for them, and I gave them every bit of knowledge I could to prepare them for the day like now, when they're banging salaries better than most young kids coming out of culinary school. Right, right. Well, you know, people, you know, have this um, image of Fort Lauderdale as like, you know, the old spring break beach town or whatever. But in my opinion, I mean, we are the southern melting pot between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. I mean, we have all the different cultures, um, all the different Latin cultures, all the different European cultures. I mean, the Russians are here. The only thing that we don't see a lot, we don't see a lot of uh, uh, Asians down here in South Florida like you do out in California and New York. But everybody else is here. And they've, you know, basically, you know, fairly rhythmatically have lived with one another for years and years and years and worked with one another for years and years and years and nobody realizes that down south here is you know it's like a giant melting pot like, uh, I mean even the fishing guides you know you got your you know old southern rednecks you know types you got uh, you know people like me you know just regular old dudes we got Cuban guys we got friggin uh, one of my friends is from the UK you know, I know an Australian guy. You got Shane Purcell, redneck from Louisiana. I mean, this is the southern melting pot, and uh, people don't even realize it. But if you come down here and you spend a little time, whether you're going to the restaurants or you're hanging out on South Beach or you're going fishing, is you will experience it if you're here between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story touching on that note that is actually my trip today. I took a road trip. You were talking about Asian population. Today I decided I was going to make some fresh wakame salad because I'm tired of everybody saying, oh, I had wakame salad at a sushi place. It's the same wakame salad that every sushi place buys in all of South Florida. And there is an Asian community. If you go up Sterling Road on past 441 in Davie, there's a Vietnamese place where I had lunch today called Pho 79. And it's probably some of the best Vietnamese in all of Broward County. And there's also a market there that you can get everything from live turtles to frogs to stone crabs to eels and they have every asian ingredient known to man like just today i bought dried seaweed dried mushrooms thai chili powder i mean you and most chefs that are from here their whole life they don't even know this place exists when I go in there, I get lost for like two and a half hours. I have a hard time getting out of there. I just try to get out of there early enough to beat the traffic to get north. <laughs> and it's funny because most common Fort Lauderdale folk wouldn't even be caught dead in this market. And they have no idea that it exists. So it's all about if you want to branch out. And most people wouldn't pull into this, this shopping plaza. Well, you know, mo most people aren't that comfortable just you know diving into these other cultures like hey i'll roll right in here and get what i need and then make that kind of food you know i mean people are pretty much you know well you know they're set in their ways but you know not everybody's got the uh 
you know the background and the familiarity with the different cultures and the different food and like you know you've opened up restaurants in different countries and stuff these people don't even know what these countries are right but they'll <laughs> brag to all their friends that they went and spent 150 dollars at basilic vietnamese in lauderdale by the sea <laughs> so well you know you know that everybody wants to brag about all these fancy places they go but you know, they couldn't tell you the difference between a macadamia and a cashew. <laughs> well, that goes along with the fish, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What, what, I'm glad you're here because this is something that, um, this is something that, um, I mean, I hear all the time when I'm either relatives, friends out with dinner with friends of friends or whatever, and they know that I'm, you know, a fishing guide. So they want to talk to me about, you know, the fish that they eat and how great it is and how fresh it is and what the best type of fish is and so on and so forth. And, you know, you listen and, you know, you, you kind of know something about fish when you fish every day, especially the local fish. And um, I think the biggest misperception about so-called fresh fish is that somebody caught it like yesterday or the day before. I mean, on average, for your, I'm not saying like a low-end restaurant. I'm not saying like a super high-end restaurant. But I'm saying like the, you know, nice restaurants, good restaurants. Is any of that fish caught like within a couple days ago? Listen here, man. That's such horse shit, horse malarkey. <laughs> that fish was caught three months ago and flash frozen. And just because they slag it out and defrost it, and they say it's flash frozen. Right. What did, it, what did the fish get naked and do a flash dance and it gets frozen? No, man, that fish was caught just like people think apples. Right. Apples were picked like a half a year ago. Does that <laughs> apple, they say fresh apples. Those apples sit in the silo. Hopefully one doesn't get rotten and rotten the whole bunch of them. So when, so when the guy tells you the story about, <coughs> when the guy tells you the story about the, his local fish market and how great it is and how much better it is than every other fish market, is there any validity to that? The only validity when you know it's fresh fish is when you see that boat come in and they unload that damn cooler and you see them pull that fish out and drag it on that cutting table and cut and chop it up. And then give it to you. That's right. That's when you know it's fresh. Well, I don't think a lot of people realize is the, um, I mean, there's so much rules and regulation when it comes to fish distribution. And one of the rules um, in fish distribution is the fish has to be flash frozen in the, uh, what is it, the... Uh, What's the name of the uh, government agency that deals with the food? FDA. FDA. So the FDA says that they have to freeze the fish to... Kill the parasites. To kill the parasites and bacteria. So all the fish that you guys <coughs> thought was fresh or think is fresh isn't exactly what you guys were thinking. That stuff has been frozen and then thawed out and then, you know... The people at the restaurant probably did a good job cooking it for you because you thought it was so good. But that fish is old, and it was in the freezer, and it was frozen. So, to enlighten everybody, you guys are not getting fresh fish that was caught off the boat the day before yesterday. You're getting frozen fish from a fish distributor that has so many rules they couldn't give you the fresh fish that they wanted to. Am I correct, or am I barking up the wrong tree, Joseph? Let me tell you something, man. Anybody that thinks that they're cutting fresh fish in a sushi restaurant, it has to be frozen. That's the rules. So when they're slicing off that sashimi for you, and you're like, wow, this fish is so fresh. Well, it was thawed out yesterday. It was fresh about a month ago. But all of the sushi fish is frozen. Unless you go to some high-end places in Japan 
where they don't they have less regulations and rules the fish is frozen they're cutting right. it out of frozen blocks right and then um and since we're talking about sushi um you know people think when they get their tuna rolls and their red meat their tuna stuff they think they're eating like yellowfin tuna or bluefin tuna or something like that and uh, years ago i used to explain that you know nine out of ten times you're eating some sort of bonita you know or you know there's different you know terms for these smaller tunas or whatever but basically it's bonita and i'm not saying that it's bad to eat bonita but it's not yellowfin tuna am i correct or am i barking up the wrong tree joe now what i love it i love it when people see they go to these restaurants and they get that bright pink looking tuna and they say wow look at the color of this tuna it's called saku it's gassed with co2 to make it look that color it doesn't come naturally that color just like i talked about earlier about the seaweed salad the wakami it's dyed it comes in 4.4 pound boxes and they scoop it out and charge you six bucks for it all right so the the fish is gassed with what? CO2. All right, and that makes it pink. Yes. And then the seaweed is dyed? Yes. With food coloring? Green number seven. <laughs> so the better job that they do of coloring the food, the more impressed the people are because, that eat it. Because at the end of the day, you eat with your eyes. Joe, I, t- I try to explain this to people every once in a while when I have enough energy at, like, you know, the family dinner party or whatever. But trust me. If I do try to explain this to them, they're looking at me like I'm an idiot. Well, I learned not to say shit when you go to somebody's dinner party because it gets you in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I've gotten in trouble at the fish fry with, with your missus a couple times or no. You know, when you go to somebody's house as a chef and people ask you questions, they don't want to hear the right answer. They don't want to learn. They just want you to say, wow, what you're doing is great. You know, right. they, they don't, they, you, you see, you got to be real careful. It's kind of like when you go hang out, when you, when you have your, uh, what's the gathering you do? The, uh, the Lunker the Con? The Lunker Con. You don't really want, you just want to socialize and say hello to these guys. You don't really want to start talking about fishing. Everybody's asking you questions. You yeah. know, if you're giving a seminar, it's one thing. But when you're there to socialize and hobnob and fist bump and give out shirts and raffles, you didn't really want to be talking about fishing. I don't want to talk. I don't really want to be talking about cooking when I'm going to a dinner party because a lot of times people start asking you questions, and then you speak the truth, and then you get in trouble. Right, 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 right. Well, I tell you, it's funny because uh, you were at the LunkerCon what two years ago in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know a lot of the fishermen that were in there, all those big time guides and captains and everything. We spend oh, so much time. You know, talking to people that don't, you know, understand about the fisheries and so on and so forth. And we're always talking about fishing. We're always talking about fishing. We're always working. We're always, you know, fish this, fish that. When we get to LunkerCon and we're all just hanging out there having beers, we hardly talk about fishing at all. It's just nice to be able to spend, you know, 35, 40 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, you know, with these other guys that are just out there fishing all the time. And it's funny because, dude, you don't want you want to hear about you know their kids, you know what their what the kids are doing, if they've done anything fun lately. You know, you might talk about business a little bit, but it's funny. It's uh, it's it's like that. But um, <laughs> let's get back to the fish thing because <coughs> the only other thing that uh, people don't realize is uh, 
you know, they come over and, you know, I have those big fish fries. And they're so impressed. You know, like, oh my God, this is the best fish fry we've been to. You know, make sure you call us when we have the next fish fry. And, uh, you know, the kids that don't normally eat like fish, you know, they come over and they eat the fish and the parents are looking at them like, wow, he likes the fish. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because that fish was caught like the day before or two days before that. And then when I get all that fresh fish, then we do the fish fry. And the difference between the fish fry from frozen fish that you're going to get from Winn-Dixie and the fish fry that you get from Captain Jeff when we pull them right out of the cooler, I mean, it will. It'll, it'll, it'll make a kid that doesn't normally like to eat fish eat fish. And, um, I mean, it's like that with a lot of food, you know. People are starting to get into this organic stuff or whatever. But, uh, I don't know. Yeah, the other thing the uh, people are always talking about is the kind of fish that they like. They, oh, could you, know, could you catch me a red snapper? And you're like, you know, I haven't caught a red snapper in 20 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? But if you brought them like a mangrove snapper, or you brought them a lane snapper, or you brought them even a porgy or something like that, they would eat that some bitch. They wouldn't know the difference that it was a red snapper or not. Or a grunt. Dude, there's people that have whole fish fries with grunts. Yeah. And nobody complains, and everybody's just fat and happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a funny fish story. I, I lived down in Miami Shores when I worked in South Beach, and I happened to live on one of the busiest canals. And I could go out there and cast in a couple mullet and have a monster snook or tarpon within 10 minutes. And I had a lawyer and accountant over at my house, a couple friends of mine one day, and they, they're like, when they saw you cast net and mullet, they started arguing. The lawyer says, oh man, you know, you could eat mullet, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And his buddy just started arguing with him. So I caught a couple big mullet, nice, fresh, silver ones, clean from the bay. And I proceeded to, I had to shut the accountant up. So I took that mullet upstairs to my condo, which I was only like two floors up. And I cleaned that mullet and I pan fried that mullet. And I'm telling you, this this kid, he didn't say a word. He just ate and shut up. <laughs> and most people don't even know, like people say, you can't eat mullet, that's a bait fish. You know what, there's a mullet fest in Panama City every year. They celebrate eating mullet, smoked mullet. Fried mullet, anything. All sorts of mullet. I mean, you're eating mud cats, catfish, eating dirt. I mean, what what's different? I mean, obviously the silver mullet, the cleaner ones, the bigger ones, nice. But it's just kind of funny when you talk about people don't know what they're eating. You can give people mullet, cook it up right, they don't know what they're eating. Right. No, people people don't realize that. But uh, yeah, no, the mullet. People eat the piss out of mullet. Now it's funny you bring up the mullet because. Um, you know, one of the one of the sayings that, you know, if you watch the Lunker Dog videos over the years and stuff, you know, we were the we were the ones to give you the breaking news that the chicken and the mullet have the same gizzard. And I mentioned that on uh, Facebook, on some fishing forums over the years, and people wanted to debate if the chicken and the mullet had the same gizzard. So, it was, oh, God, this is what, be five, six years back. Um, I got, I went down to the, I went down to the butcher store and I got a, I got a four-pound chicken, whole chicken, guts in it and everything. And then I got a four-pound hog-leg mullet. And I proceeded to take the hog-leg mullet and the four-pound chicken down to Chef Joe's um, kitchen where we got the correct knives out and the correct cutting board, and we cut the chicken open, and we cut the mullet open, and we laid the gizzards side by side, and we scientifically proved 
that the chicken and the mullet had the same gizzard. If you'd like to see that video, go to YouTube, type in Munker Dog, chicken and the mullet got the same gizzard. I'm sure it'll pop up. Watch the video. It's scientific fact. And we have proof on YouTube that the chicken and the mullet had the same gizzard. Now the question for you, Joe, is if we took chicken gizzards and we took, took mullet gizzards and we fried them up during the fish fry, would people be able to taste the difference between the chicken and the mullet's gizzard? Oh, that'd be a different story. So you think you'd be able oh, to taste yeah, it? Yeah, you'd be able to taste it. But you can't see it. Nah, and I'll never forget that day because you brought me a frozen mullet. It was kind of funny. Well, dude, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, I was trying to carve a frozen fish, embarrassed myself on the video. That was funny. Dude, but during the video, it is now undisputed scientific fact that the chicken and the mullet do have the same gizzard. That's right. And you only hear that, you only hear that in the Real Guy Network, you only hear that from real guys. You are not gonna like, you know, stumble upon that in the dictionary. You're not gonna stumble upon that type of conversation when you're out to dinner. You're not gonna stumble upon that conversation at your household Christmas party. Unless you did watch the video, and unless that intrigued you, and you have enough guts to bring it up at a, you know, an event like that. We're not going to talk about that on the Deadliest Catch or Wicked Tuna. Oh, my God, the Wicked Tuna thing. Wicked Tuna has, has... I've watched all the episodes of Wicked Tuna because one of the problems with being a fisherman is the TV content. There's just not enough there. So if anything that has to do with fishing, including Wicked Tuna, you end up watching. So I watch all the Wicked Tuna episodes, and one of the things that burns my ass until this year, which burns my ass even more, which we'll get into later, but one of the things that always burned my ass about uh, the Wicked Tuna dudes is how often they would talk about feeding their family. Yeah, you know I mean? like, and then they show the like, you know, how much money that they, uh, you know, won over the course of the year, and that they had to feed their family through the winters and stuff. Well, I don't know how much it costs. You know, the cost of living in Massachusetts. But I know it ain't cheap. And I know what the cost of living here is in Fort Lauderdale. And it ain't cheap. And let me tell you something. If I had to feed my family with the amount of money that those dudes make killing tunas, we'd all starve over here. I mean, after my property taxes, after the school bill, after <laughs> all the things that we got to pay for, if we had that kind of cash, after everything was said and done, we would starve over the winter here in Fort Lauderdale. So the feeding the family thing with the Wicked Tuna thing makes me want to puke. Yeah. You feel me? I hear you. Oh, my God. They must have said it 10,000 times. So if somebody says something 10,000 times, the chances of that like, having any factuality to it at all? It's probably not true. All right. I just got off my Wicked Tuna rant. Yeah, Wicked Tuna. <laughs> do, you watch the sh do you watch the episodes? I've watched it a few times. I, I don't really want to watch guys sit around and sleep on a boat waiting for a fish to bite. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's like you know, modern-day, supposedly, reality TV. Well, you know, reality TV ruins a lot of, lot of different, uh, how do you say, careers. I mean, it's saturated. It's no, it doesn't ruin the career, but it ruins uh, the it perception ruins, of the it career. Hurts, it hurts the craft. That's a better way to put it. Right. It, it, di it disrespects the yes. craft. I mean, like, I watch, I see these cooking shows, and half of them are a joke. But, you know, it's just saturated the market when people think it's real. You don't really know what's real to you. 
go out with Captain Jeff and sit on the boat and wait wait for a fish to bite, or you go in the kitchen and it takes you two hours to put a plate of food together. That's real. <laughs> right. This shit you watch on TV, these guys that every ingredient's right next to them. Well, who chopped it? The mice? <laughs> Rat tattooing? They do it in the middle of the night. It just shows up on the table. And you throw it in the pan and you cook it. Yeah, that's that's not real. But but it's TV. So that's what people want to see. Well, I don't know if they want to see it, but that's their choices on TV. I think if they wanted to see TV that bad, then YouTube and uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that other crap, that uh, yeah, that would have totally failed. If TV was any good, all those social media platforms would have totally failed. So TV totally blows. And um, I think... I think like if they did reality TV and actually kept it somewhat real, yeah, okay, wouldn't have like you know, this crazy drama and all that. And I think the crowd or the viewership would be much smaller. But I think you're better off with a smaller viewership of genuine real people than you are with a huge viewership of people that either want or misled, don't care, or pastime, whatever you want to call it, you know, it just aren't really into it. And I kind of learned that. Um, I kind of learned that on the social media platforms. You know, like if I wanted to get more social media views, I would do stuff that I don't normally do. You know what I mean? Like go catch a shark, or fish with a chick that has a g-string on, or I don't know cook a fish in a mason jar. I don't know. You know, anything stupid or anything like totally that you wouldn't normally do, that's what you do if you want to get a lot of views on the social media platforms. Well, it's kind of funny going back to eating fresh fish. You know, the reality is you you don't know who's handled that fish and where it's been. Now, there's many a times I've been out on fishing boats and you catch a fresh mahi. And you butcher it right there, and you have some lemon, some salt, some whatever, some saltine crackers and Tabasco. You fillet that, and you cut yourself some sashimi right on the boat. Squeeze some lime on it, put some salt on it. That's fresh fish. And you can trust it because you know it came right out of the water. You cut it, and you're eating it. There's plenty of times, and that's safe. So, I mean, as far as the cooking shows and the TV shows, I'm gonna tell you what, you could take 10 people, random people, that brag that they watch the Food Network and they watch all the cooking shows. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. I damn sure you bring those 10 people in the kitchen seven o'clock in the morning and you work a 14 hour shift and see how it is to be in a real commercial kitchen, I bet you two would come back the next day. Yeah, if that many, if that yeah. many. Well, I mean, you're talking about two different ball games, but the perception of it, I mean, it's not, you know, the big glamour thing. Yeah, it's the same thing with the guide business. I can't tell you how many times, you know, people, uh, well, they think that, you know, being a fishing guide is like, you know, the life of, uh, you know, leisure. Like you know, Riley. Right, you know, like we just like hang out on the boat and have pina coladas, and then when the client shows up, we, we roll out there and catch a few fish, and then we come back, and then we have more pina coladas and listen to some Jimmy Buffett. And, uh, well, that's horse mark. That's not the way it goes. I mean, every fisherman that's ever fished for fish from the creation of time has had to bust their ass to catch fish. Same with feeding people. It's not like, you know, an easy thing to do. 
but very much you know very much alike where uh, you know you work hard at something and you master it and then you actually have a gift that people you know um, can relate to but um, anyway chef thanks for coming in um, thanks for doing the podcast with us um, yeah thanks for having me I mean, if there's anything else, you know, that you want to, you know, tell the fishermen out there or the listeners or our audience, I mean, feel free. But, uh, you know, if you want to just take over, go right ahead. I want to tell a funny story to tell you how long Captain Jeff and I go back. We go back in high school, but then we both got recruited by some of the same colleges out of high school. And the funniest story we'll ever be able to tell anybody, and I'll tell it till I croak over, as we went, his grandmother lived in Valdosta, Georgia. And we went on a recruiting trip. She actually lived in America's Georgia. Well, America's Georgia, right. And then we were That's going right. to we Valdosta, going, Georgia. Yeah, America's Georgia. That's right. She lived in America's, and we were going on a recruiting trip to Valdosta, Georgia. Make a long story short, Jeff was DJing at the time. He got some fresh music from New York City, breakdance music. And we're meeting up with a DJ friend of his. Well, he was waiting for us to go to this party. So we get in, a, we get in this uh, mom's town car that we drove up there in. And this kid, man, he takes us out. We're out in the middle of nowhere in cornfields. There's no lights anywhere around. I mean, it's in a pitch dark, pitch, dark, pitch black. We're driving through dirt roads. You don't even, there's no turns. We're in the cornfields. They said, turn here. Well, turn where? Oh, at the next opening. We drive out 10 miles out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you see the lights of this huge barn. And make a long story short, we get out with this cat. We go in there. They're waiting on Jeff to bring the music. We walk in there, and uh, needless to say, we were two of the only white folks in there. Yeah, we were the only two white dudes drinking in Drinking our 40s. <laughs> and then we got up, and we were on the stage. Jeff started playing music, and we started dancing to the oak tree. And next thing you know, Everybody was giving us beers, old English. I mean, we were dancing with the crowd. We had the crowd going nuts. Dude. And we, 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 had, we didn't even think about bringing any beer. I mean, everywhere you turn, there was people offering us a hit off their 40. I'll never forget that. We danced like it was crazy. But, I mean. Dude, those, are, those were good times. Those were good times. That was the very beginning of hip-hop. And, um, yeah, I, I had a friend, Charles, out there in God, he he could not wait to bring us to this house party, and we roll up in this thing, and they Fine got the party. yeah they got the big DJ thing going. It got to be what two hundred people in At the place, least. and um, we broke out the fresh jams, and people went nuts, started dancing. Dude, we danced so hard, and we had so much fun. <laughs> Dude, he, it's funny you brought that up. That those were good times. Those the were good times. The only two white folk. Amongst two, three hundred people in a barn party out in the middle of the cornfield. And everybody, Something you can never imagine. And everybody was having a blast. That's right. <laughs> Those were good times. Those were good times. As you can see, Chef Joe and I, we go way back. Chef's a real guy. We, uh, we became real close friends, you know, busting our ass together, playing football. We've been friends ever since. And I just want to, you know, thank Chef Joe for being in here. If you guys have any questions or whatever, reach out to me on one of the social media platforms for Chef Joe. And, uh, Chef, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. Great, man. Run that dog, pal. All right.